going to start with a question this morning. What is more important in God's church? Loving one another, preserving unity, or protecting the church from falsehood, fighting for the truth? Which is most important? <laughs> what? Yes, both. Oh, come on. <laughs> what? Which is more important? Loving one another, preserving unity in the church, or protecting the holiness of the church, um, fighting against sin in the church? <laughs> if you do the second, the first will come. Okay, hard question, isn't it? And a lot of you took the middle ground and said both. You just can't choose one or the other. And why do we take the middle ground on that? Which one is commanded in Scripture? Both. Both. And there are problems when we so gravitate towards one or so gravitate towards the other that we neglect the one. If you are a person that is all about love in the church and, and preserving unity in the church and you're willing to sacrifice truth to do that, where does that leave your church? Falling apart. Falling apart, pursuing things that aren't biblical, that aren't godly, and that will break down the unity of a church. Guaranteed. And so you, you can't ignore truth and still have unity. But if you're one that is so into the truth and so into I must look for every person that is straying as they walk in that door and confront them before they leave this door... Maybe, you know, I, I saw John driving by a liquor store the other day. I don't know if he went in or not, but I, I'm, I'm going to guess he did, and we're going we're gonna to get him. <laughs> Sorry, I know John can take that. He didn't, by the way. We're joking. He, he didn't actually go in. But then if I'm that so focused on the truth, and I don't do it in a loving way, what does that do to the church? Well, well nobody's left, for one thing, because we're not encouraging each other. We're not lovingly confronting each other. We must hold both together. Growing up, and, and this is a, a sort of a sad and gross story, I'll just warn you of that up front. Sometimes I start with a funny story, don't be looking for the punchline. Um, but it illustrates what I want to talk about today. Um, when I was young, I, I raised hamsters. And I bred hamsters, and I'd go and sell them to the pet store um, and, and make a little bit of money. I was a, a businessman early on, and I really don't know how mom let me do this because it was in my bedroom and it stunk. But, but hey, I was raising hamsters and, and one of the things that happened early on that I still remember very vividly, you know how when you're a child there's certain memories that are just very vivid in your mind, is one of the mama hamsters had a litter of, of little babies and they have multiple babies and I, I let them grow a little bit, probably about a week into their growth, I, they were just so cute. And I wanted to pet them. And so I opened the cage and I pet, pet, petted one of the um, little baby hamsters. And what happened next horrified me because I shut the cage and I watched the mama go and kill that baby hamster. And I, I remember crying back to my mom, they killed my hamster and that's $1.50 at the pet store. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there was some heart to that. But why did that mother hamster, out of instinct, kill that baby hamster? Because it had my scent on it. And at that point, it was a perceived threat, and a perceived threat to the rest of her litter. And so she eliminated the threat, whether it was real or not. 
And, and we, we, I, I tell that story because I think it illustrates Joshua chapter 22, where we're coming with the children of Israel, and illustrates what we fight in the church, especially when we're not being attacked from outside. During peacetime is where division often happens more than during wartime. Nobody argues about the color on the wall in a foxhole. You're worried about the bullets that might kill you. But in peacetime, when things are going well, division can happen, and then these perceived threats can come in. And in a church, it is so easy to kill our own, to attack our own, to see something we don't like, to see something in someone's life, to jump to conclusions and to either judge them and alienate them from our circles, which in effect kills the fellowship of the church, or worse yet, to start talking about that person. And we let these assumptions come in to form our view that then is something that divides the church. And sometimes we do it under the guise of, I'm fighting for truth. I'm fighting for, for what is right. I'm fighting for the holiness of the church. But that's where the, the children of Israel were. And we have to balance that tension, and this text balances that tension because we do want to love one another. We do want unity. In John 17, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he goes on to talk about loving one another and the unity of the church. But then we also have Jesus' words in Matthew 18 that says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And he's giving some methods of how to do that, some loving ways to do that. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In 2 Corinthians 6, the end of that chapter, going into to chapter 17, we see God through His Word, through the Apostle Paul, saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And at the end of that passage, he says, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And there's tension in those verses between unity and loving one another and protecting the flock. But how we go about doing that is everything. As we come to Joshua 22, we get to the last section of the book of Joshua. And we, we've gone through the campaigns, and we spent a lot of time on the campaigns where battles were fought. Unfortunately, a battle was lost because of sin. And we saw a nation following God and at times not following God and the consequences for that. And then we saw the middle section where the land was allotted. And Pastor Andrew did a great job last week of going through the whole land and that represented, after the conquest, the tribes getting their inheritance, getting their land. This was a very, very incredible fulfillment of promise to them. And so they take the land and things are good, and we have generally a time of peace. As they take the land, they still have some little skirmishes that have to be fought, but the, the back of the enemy army has been broken. And so we come now to chapters 22, 23, and 24, and they form the end of the book of Joshua. And they answer questions like, what's going to happen to the children of Israel? Will they still follow God? Will they stay a nation even though there are 12 tribes that have different lands allotted to them? And that's what we come to today. The unity of the people. Will they continue to follow God's commands? The truth and protecting the truth. 
And so we start, I want to start at the end of Joshua 21, if you turn there. We'll, we'll get to Joshua 22, but I want to read the last two verses of Joshua 21, verses 44 and 45, because it's setting up these last three chapters that are now going to be challenges to the people. What kinds of things might now affect their unity, their ability to do God's work? But at the end of Joshua 21, 44 and 45, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. So we come to a time of peace, a different stage. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And that sets up chapter 22. Time of of peace. The enemies have fallen. And unfortunately, as is so often the case, we as people tend to find new enemies. So let's turn to Joshua 22. And let's go through the story and then pull out some principles after we go through the story. It's important to sort of follow how the narrator is telling the story because how he tells the story is setting up the conclusions that he wants us to get. And, and it's, a, it's a great example of master storytelling because the, the, the author is going to lead us down one path identifying with one group of people, and then he's going to just sock us in the gut and say, okay, let's look at what... I thought about sort of doing that this morning, but I'm just going to tell you that that's what's happening up front, and that way we can study it and um, not get too emotionally involved in one tribe or the other. We start with verses 1 through 9, and really this is the beginning. Job well done, the troops are dismissed. Job well done, the troops are dismissed. The people, the the tribes, and especially the eastern tribes, the two and a half tribes, if you remember in chapter 1, they have their allotment on which side of the Jordan? The east side of the Jordan, that way. Okay, So their their land is there, and they they had asked for that. Moses had said yes. God had said yes to that and given them that land. And in chapter 1... Joshua instructed them to do what before they took their land? Help their brothers. Okay, you're not going to go over there and rest on your couches watching your big screen TVs while the other nine and a half tribes are, are taking the land over here. And so they said, okay, absolutely. We promised that to Moses. We promise it now. And so for the last seven years, and get this, this wasn't quick, for the last seven years, the, the fighting men of those two and a half tribes have been with the rest of Israel breaking the back of the Canaanite army while their women and children are back um, in, setting up um, home. And so Joshua now comes and addresses those two, those two and a half tribes <laughs> with authority. <laughs> so let's read, starting in verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's the two and a half tribes, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as He promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents, in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Isn't that a great commendation? Joshua pulls you in at the end of the battle. It's a job well done. And he says, 
you have kept everything you said. You have followed God. You have followed Moses. You have followed me. Now you get to go home. Pretty incredible commendation. They were faithful. What the author here is doing is he's setting up really a character reference for these two and a half tribes. Right at the beginning, he's saying, this is what these tribes are like. They're faithful. They're following God. They're following um, His commands. They fought exactly as was instructed. They saved lives of some of those men that they fought beside. Their lives were saved by some of those nine and a half tribes. They were one nation doing God's work. And that should create some trust. That should create a, a, a pattern of faithfulness that all knew about. In verse 5, Joshua goes on because he's dismissing them, so he's going to give them some instructions for how you go on from here. And he says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. And so Joshua, as he's sending them out, said, keep following God. Don't forget your God. Keep obeying Him. And really, you can summarize those commands to three different things. Obey, love, and serve. Obey God. Follow His commands. Love Him with all your heart. And at the end, cling to Him, but then serve Him. Don't forget that our lives are in service to the King. Same is true today. Our lives, because we have been saved, as one of the youth themes was a couple of years ago, we're saved to serve. We're servants of the King. And Joshua is reminding, obey, love, and serve. He then goes on in the next few verses to give a blessing to, to continue this. In verse 7, Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses has given a, pos- a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. So Manasseh, half the tribe had some land on the eastern side of the Jordan, half the tribe on the western side. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. And so he not only verbally blesses them, he says, Take all kinds of loot. All the the battles they've been, been, been waging, they had instructions from God of what not to take and, and who to kill and who to destroy. But God also said, you can have some of these things. And Joshua is saying, take them home. And so he was sending two and a half tribes home very wealthy. Now he also says, go home and do what with your brothers? Share it with your brothers. Now that quite possibly started to get under the skin of the nine and a half tribes a little bit. Because what might they be thinking? They didn't fight with us. The people that were left behind, no, no, the spoils go to the warriors. But God said, no, even those that are back home, and we see that later, um, even those that are back home participate in the, in the battle. They support the battle. And so they deserve part of the results, the spoils. Divide the spoil of the enemies with your brothers. Nine, so the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead. 
their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. I love these first nine verses. It really is job well done. Go home. Be at peace. Be with your families. And if I hadn't seen my family for seven years, this would be really good news. And I'd be on my way. And this sets up what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. One point, just an application point that I want to get out of this. It is a good thing to commend God's workers. Joshua here is commending these tribes for doing a good job, for fighting for the Lord. It's a good thing to commend God's workers. And I I pray that we are a church that does that. Yes, it was God's work, but His instruments, His tools are to be commended. I think of that here at Village. We, we saw a presentation for VBS this morning. And I just watched all week Village rising up and ministering, ministering to those 130 kids. It's pretty amazing when a church of 200 can minister to 130. And volunteers were volunteering all over the place, some with the kids, some behind the scenes. Some of you were praying every day for what was going on. Praise God. I commend you for helping those kids hear the gospel. For the souls of those kids that turned to Christ this week. Thank you. I think of all the ministries that happen here at Village. Those of you, many of you are in leadership of ministries, whether it be women's ministry or or some of the other events that we have or Awana or different things. Thank you for doing that. Many of you are serving behind the scenes. Things that if they didn't, if, if your, your service didn't happen, this place would fall apart. Even things like cleaning the facilities, if that didn't happen, boy, would that impact ministry on Sunday. Yeah, amen. And I thank you for that. I commend you for being a faithful congregation. I commend you for giving to God's work. Something we don't, we don't talk about a lot. But those of you that give and are faithful in tithing, thank you for that because that is part of how God uses His his resources to fund His ministry to, to have the gospel go on. Thank you for doing that. I think it's okay to thank people for being faithful to God's Word. And so, here Joshua is commending the tribes and I commend you. It is such a joy to work and serve in this church with a people that love God, obey God, and serve Him. But then the, the chapter goes on. And in verse 10, we, we get the, the, the storyline starts to shift a little bit. The author here has presented the eastern tribes as faithful tribes. But now in, in point number two, the assumption that almost starts a civil war. The assumption that almost starts a civil war and things change like that. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, and they here is the two and a half tribes, the eastern tribes, they're on their way home. And just think of the emotions that they might be feeling. Like I said, excited to be home, but also for the last seven years, they have fought side by side with these other men that they have now left. That have become their family that they are now having to say goodbye to. And I think of that, this had to be incredible mixed emotions for them. Because they, they've left the majority. And, and part of those mixed emotions might very well have been, what if, what if there's a break between us? What if they don't accept us anymore? 
how will we stay close? You know, I, I think of veterans reun reunions. Have you seen any veterans reunions? It's like tears everywhere, and the, the, the men are hugging that are usually these gruff, hard men. Why? Because they've developed a bond together forged in battle, forged in risking their lives for each other. And so that now, is the, the, they're separated. But those are all part of the emotions here. And so when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is at the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of an imposing size. And right there, the, the, the needle on the record player, for those of you that remember what those are, the needle on the record player scratches across the vinyl and the music stops and we're like, what? They did what? How could they do this? And, and so what they did is on their way back home, they, they come to the Jordan. And if you remember, the Jordan is in the Rift Valley. We've talked about that a number of times, which means they're coming from the mountains. They go down about 2,000 feet to the, the Jordan Valley. This is below sea level. The Jordan at times is crossable, at times is, is very difficult to cross. If you go across the other side to their land, it then goes up to 3,000 feet to another plateau. And so this Rift Valley really is a dividing point. It's hard to get, to get through, to get across, and people normally stay in their lands. And they get there, and they build an altar, in, interestingly enough, on the western side, on the Canaanite side of the Jordan, before they cross. They build an altar of imposing size, this huge thing. Now, if you heard that, what might you be thinking? How dare they? How dare they? Let me read a verse to you. Leviticus 17, 18 through 9. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. We see that instruction again in, in Numbers. This is a command of God. You sacrifice one place at the house of God. God is concerned about the holiness of his people. And if he just lets altars spring up all over the place and people sacrificing here and people sacrificing here, he knows that they'll start to bring in the traditions of the land and worship and, and sacrifice will be compromised. And so God has said there's one place. So this is a pretty major, major issue. Verse 11, And the people of Israel heard it. Interesting that they're called the people of Israel and not the two and a half. Heard it and said, Behold, the altar of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they've built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. You see in their language already there's division. Do you catch that? Little hints all through this. Verse 12, And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They hear about something. Oh, they are, they've built an altar to God. Let's kill them. That's what's happening here. Interestingly enough, in that last verse, did you catch the, the phrase that's used to, to describe themselves? The whole assembly of the people of Israel. Who's not there? Two and a half tribes. But that's okay. They've chosen to build an altar. They're no longer part of God's people. It's important. To, the, the author actually uses this language throughout the first half of this chapter 
to show this divide. But here's the thing. Is it right to stand up for truth? You're like, I know where this chapter is going. I'm afraid to answer. (laughs) It is right to stand up for truth. It is a good thing to stand against sin and to defend God's holiness. I would argue that the nine and a half tribes had very good reason to be concerned. Now, I think where they went astray was that last line. And so they decided to make war against them and kill them. There perhaps would be some intermediate steps before we just jump there. But they were so concerned. At this point, the author has led us to believe about God's holiness. We're going to find out differently a little bit later. They are so concerned, presumably about God's holiness, that they are willing to go to war. But I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. It's good to stand and defend God. To stand for purity and worship. To keep sin from the community of faith. This was a serious offense. Francis Schaeffer said, They thought the holiness of God was being threatened. So these men who were sick of war said, The holiness of God demands no compromise. I would to God that the church of the 20th century, or the 21st century, would learn this lesson. The holiness of the God who exists demands that there be no compromise in the area of truth. So good, they stand for holiness. The bad is we don't see them asking God for wisdom. We don't see them finding out actually what's going on. We do see them already speaking in terms of division, already making assumptions, already judging the two and a half tribes. It is so divisive to the body to start to make decisions and actions based on assumptions. So we get to 13 through 20. I've titled this section, The Confrontation, Assumptions and Accusations Made. And here, right at the beginning, we see that cooler heads have prevailed, and they actually don't just go kill them, they send a group. Praise God. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Catch that language again. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? Are you feeling a certain tone here? And if you two rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of our God, the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in a matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. 
pretty harsh confrontation. And again, so many, so many writers that I read wanted to see this chapter in black and white. Either the Western tribes did everything wrong or the Eastern tribes did everything wrong. I, I think life is much more complicated than that. And we see some good things the Western tribes did. We see some awful things the Western tribes did. In this case, it was good that the leaders came and tried to talk before war. But it was bad that they didn't find out the truth before just lambasting them, laying into them, making all kinds of accusations. Some of these look like they're worded as questions. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, they're not questions. It's more rhetorical shots, arrows to the heart. There was no questioning here. There was an assumption of truth and actions based on that assumption. Look at verses 16 through 18. Actually, in verse 16, we see the nature of their assumptions. They were assuming things in three areas. Their heart, their actions, and their motives. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith, that's an accusation, that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord? And that's an assumption of the heart. You no longer want to follow God. Your heart's not directed toward God. And based on what they heard, incidentally, if you go back and look, this is, just what, this is just hearsay from a messenger. Based on what they heard, they assumed that these people no longer loved God. Next, the next assumption. Turning away for this day from following the Lord by building, yourselves on, on, uh, by building yourselves an altar. The next assumption was that they built an altar to make sacrifices on. They were worshiping wrong. And so they were assuming things about their actions that we'll have to wait for the next paragraph to see if that's true. And then finally, at the end, they're assuming things about their motives. They built an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. And so now the accusation is you are trying to rebel against God. Your motives are not only that you don't want to follow God, but now you're rebelling against Him in your very heart. Those three accusations are repeated in verse 18. They're repeated in 19. Those become, those assumptions become the foundation for their attack on these two and a half tribes. And so the results are in verse 16, you're not part of the congregation of the Lord. We are the whole congregation of the Lord. You're not one of us. And when we make assumptions about motives with each other, that's usually where we go, isn't it? There's a division, a breach that happens. And even if later I find out that my assumptions about your motives were wrong, it is so hard to repair that. Because now I'm filtering everything through you're an evil person. And if that's our filter, we can find things to support that because all of us are evil people. But for the grace of God and the blood of Christ. So verse 16, you're not part of the congregation of the Lord. Verse 16, it's a breach of faith, a treacherous act, unfaithfulness to God. In verse 17, you're sinning like we did at Peor. And that goes back to Numbers 25. You can write that in, study that on your own. But it's a situation where the Israelites were dealing with the Moabites. The women came in and deceived and, 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 and brought them away from God. They started worshiping idols and Baal Peor. They were seduced by the Moabite women. And God judged them. A plague broke out. 24,000 of their number died. And Phineas, 
here the same man that they sent to these two and a half tribes, probably because of this incident. Phineas had enough courage and he took a spear and he went to the ringleader who was with the Moabite woman at the time and he drove the spear through both of their bodies, through the stomach, and ended the rebellion and ended the plague. Rightfully so. Stood for what was right. And so they send him here. Stand for what's right. If we have to kill the two and a half tribes, we have to kill them. And so they were accused of sinning like Peor. In verse 19, maybe your land's not as good as our land. You see that division again, that this is the area where God is. Your area is the land that you just asked for and were given. And there's this distinction of land which is just so, so divisive at the time. But really, the, the, and then later in verse 20, we see that him compared to Achan. Who knows, maybe some of these men had lost relatives in the battle at Ai. Saying, you're sinning like Achan. What is interesting is, is as you look, there's not so much of an, an emphasis on God's holiness here as God's judgment. And we see probably some of their mixed emotions here. Because in verse 17 and verse 19 and verse 20, in 17, if you continue, we'll all suffer like we did in Peor. Verse 19, you're going to make us all rebels. In verse 20, God's wrath will come on all of us and some of us will die because of your sin. And again, it's not necessarily a bad thing to fear God's judgment. That's a good thing. But the reason for obedience should also be about God's holiness and preserving His holiness. And so there's a little bit of self-preservation here, which I would say probably any of us would have when we come to this. We've got to stop them. So up till now, as you've read through the story, as we've heard the story, whose side are you on? The Western tribes, right? The Eastern tribes are breaking faith with God. They are rebelling. Their hearts are not turned to God. Let's get them. And then we come to the the next few verses, which are the crux, the climax of the story. The author has deliberately angled everything toward this. And in verse 21, Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows, and let Israel itself know. And they're using strong language here, repeating God's name to say, He is our witness. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No! But we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. They were afraid that this dividing line would be one that eventually the western tribes would stop them from coming and worshiping the true God. And so they built a pile of stones. Interestingly enough, probably right around Gilgal where the pile of stones were made to remember the crossing of the Jordan. And they said, this will be a witness. 
Verse 26, Therefore we said, Let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, You have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, If this should be said to us, to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. And we're running out of time, but just briefly, they respond in grace rather than anger. And they respond in truth. And they said, no, we, we're not building this to sacrifice. In fact, if they had done any sort of fact-checking, they would have found there was no blood or sacrifices on that altar. They said, we did this as a memorial to remind us that we are one. They did it to try to preserve unity, but no good deed goes unpunished, I guess. And it was interpreted differently. Something they intended for unity and for good of the whole was interpreted differently by the nine and a half and almost caused them to be wiped out. That is sobering. But by the grace of God, discussion happened. Truth came out. In verses 30-34, through the point there is unity is restored and no one kills anyone. I added that last part. You can read those, but the Phineas and the delegation accepts it. They never quite apologize, but they say, this is good. This is a good altar. They name it. Let's call it witness. Because it's a witness between us that we are one people. And it becomes a symbol of unity. And the authors just shift the whole story. The western tribes were the heroes, and then they became the goats, really. Because they had made assumptions, and unity was threatened. So I just want to give you six lessons as we close. I'll just list them out. Love to talk about them more, and hopefully in your community groups you can. Six lessons out of this story. The first is it's commendable for believers to be on guard for purity of faith and worship. The Western tribes were right to look into this. How they looked into it is the issue. But they were right to stand for truth. Second one, and... and I would scream this from the pulpit, but I don't want to hurt your ears. Be careful not to jump to conclusions about someone's motives. Be careful not to jump to conclusions about someone's motives. That's what happened here. They were judging on circumstantial evidence. They only had some of the facts. But it is God who tests the heart, we read in Jeremiah 17.10. It is so easy to get so upset at people. Our human natures are built to defend ourselves, to elevate ourselves above other people. And how many times have, have we gone home and said, well, I don't know, that, that person was, was really angry with me at church today. Or maybe they didn't even say hi as they walked by. I've heard comments like that. Or, or maybe they were a little gruff with me today. And so we jump to conclusions about their motives, about their heart. Well, they don't like me. They don't care about different things. When maybe they just had a bad day. 
Maybe they really needed someone to pray for them today and minister to them. And in a church body, in a family, I watch my kids do it. My kids are always coming and saying, well, Alicia did this, or Jeffrey did this, or Mark did this. And, and as we explore it, it's always down to motives in their heart and assumptions being made. And it kills a family and it kills a church. Be careful not to jump to conclusions about someone else's motives. You don't know their heart. Third one, get all the facts. There are two sides to every story. Then get all the facts again. They were basing everything they were doing on one set of facts, the messenger. They hadn't looked to see if sacrifices had happened here. They hadn't even thought through the fact that the altar was built on the western side of the Jordan, and so they couldn't have been using it for sacrifices. It didn't make sense what their accusations were. They didn't think about that. They were just full steam ahead. Let's get them. Proverbs 18, 17. I cling to this verse. In counseling, in talking with people, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Short little proverb, but boy, that would save us a whole lot of trouble in life if we practiced it. And it's hard for any of us to practice that. A simple look at the facts would have brought them to a different conclusion. Fourth, honest and open discussion will often clear the air and lead to reconciliation if we approach it with the right spirit. Galatians 6.1 talks about confronting someone in transgression. And it says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. If the, if the western tribes had come and checked their facts and started to ask questions. In seriousness, I'm not talking watering down what, what they thought the eastern tribes did. This whole potential crisis would have been averted much sooner. Number five, give each other the benefit of the doubt. The author deliberately starts with verses one through nine, giving us a character reference for the eastern tribes. The westerners should have known better. They had fought with these men for nine or seven years. They should have known better, and they didn't even give them the benefit of the doubt. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And finally, 6. As we're dealing with family in the church, a person wrongly accused also should remember that their attitude in response is the key. If the eastern tribes had said, Oh yeah, you're going to accuse us? You're on our land, you're all dead which could have happened in that culture. It would have escalated. Nothing would have been solved. Instead, they responded in grace. Proverbs 15.1, A soft answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stirs up anger. Those six deserve a little bit more um, exploration. And I encourage you to read those verses and explore those this week. But I, leave, I, I end with this. We are God's church called to follow His leading to do His work. And when things are going well, we have to be just as vigilant to not let anything stop us from moving forward with God's work. In this case, it was both preserving truth, but also doing it in love and doing it in unity and preserving unity. Both are true and both always must be pursued. I pray that we can learn something from the Western and Eastern tribes. After this, they became one nation again. Let nothing divide us.
hold to truth, but do so in a biblical way where we come together in unity. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray right now that if there's, man, if there's anything going on in our body, any conflicts, anything where, where people have been offended by others, hurt by others, that are holding on to grudges, I pray that you would start dealing with those right now because those have no place in your body. Lord, if discussions need to happen, I pray that they happen today. And that we are not a people that jumps to try to kill each other, to judge each other, to crucify each other of sorts. But that we are a people that seeks to, to reconcile, to talk, to not let anything stand in the way of your work. Lord, I know in a, a small church, in a, in a family, that there are things that can fester and linger. Lord, help us to commit right now to saying, not here, not now. The work of God is too important. Lord, I do pray that we are a congregation also that stands for truth. That stands for your word. That obeys your commands in every way. And encourages each other to do that. Lord, I pray that you would use us to do your work. In Jesus' name.